This morning, with God's help, we will be considering verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the altar, the almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on, upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed God, the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds." This is God's holy word. May he add a blessing to the reading of it and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider these um, terrible judgments, but most of all, we consider your holiness. Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts that believe, and minds that understand. I decrease that you may increase, Lord, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated, uh, saints. Well, good morning. I greet you once more, once more in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. We come now to the third cycle of judgments from God upon the wicked. These bold judgments are recapitulating the judgments that we have already considered, but once again, as we've said before, from a different angle. You will remember that the first judgments were revealed in the seal judgments from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 8, uh, they cover the entire period of time between Christ's first advent and second glorious appearance. To use a technical term, theologians call the, the period between the first and second coming of Christ the inter-advent or inter-advental age. The inter-advent or the inter-advental age. It is a time that we're living in now, which could also properly be called the last days. In this series of judgments, seal judgments, death comes upon one-fourth of the inhabitants of the earth that culminates in the seventh seal, the return of Christ, as he demonstrates his authority to judge upon the earth, to judge the earth. The second cycle the trumpet judgments from Revelation 8 to Revelation 11, likewise, they run their course through the inter-advent or inter-advental age, describing the punishment of God in a much more intense fashion. 
The trumpet judgments will bring death now to not one-fourth, but to one-third of the inhabitants of the earth. This cycle culminates again in the return of Christ at the seventh trumpet, when the city of men, Babylon, falls in destruction. And now, in the bold judgments of Revelation 16, we have an even more intense description of the judgments of God. Now, commentators are divided on whether or not the bold judgments are a, listen to this word, a cyclical series of judgments that run throughout the entire interadvental age, or if they are only limited to the time of judgment just before the return of Christ. Does that make sense? Um, commentators, they are divided on whether or not what we are talking about today only happens just before the return of Christ, or if it is something that happens all throughout the last days, which are from when Christ rose to when Christ will return. They're divided. Um, my position is that all of these cycles, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowls, have been, are, and will continue to occur. So I'm on the side that says um, the bowl judgments are cyclical. They are ongoing. Now, I do believe they are intensifying, though, by the sheer fact that Opposition to the church is more widespread today than it, oh, than it ever has been because the church is more widespread. So as the church was localized, um, it, it could not be set all over the world, but it could be set one-third. As the church continues to grow, we have one-fourth. And as the church continues to grow, we have all over the world. These things that have been happening will continue to happen. Does that make sense? I hope so. If the seal judgments present, here's three different versions. If the seal judgments present a wide-angle view of the entire interadvental period, and if the trumpet judgments are a bit more narrow-focused, if we're using a lens, if we have wide-angle lens for the seal, um, <clears throat> a more narrow-focused for the, just, the trumpets, then what we have here in the bowls is a, is a more detailed description of what has been going on in terms of God's judgment upon the wicked. Whether or not... Um, these judgments occur during the entire ad interadvental age or period, it's not nearly as important as what John is explaining to us here in the 16th chapter. Namely, I think, first and foremost, is the holiness of God. Um, we could get caught up with, uh, when will these things happen? Are these things happening? What do these seals mean? And I think that we can miss the big picture. The point of it is that God is holy. John is extolling the holiness of God. He is setting forth what will happen to the earth and what will happen to unbelieving inhabitants when Christ returns at the end of the age, when Christ will judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. No one will escape the judgment of God because God is holy. The holiness of God is manifested, revealed, we're going to talk about this today, displayed through judgment that is called wrath against sin. And when the bowls have reached their fill... God's judgment will be complete. Saints, I, I believe this is the foundation of chapter 16. That, that if, if we're not getting that, then we're missing the whole picture of chapter 16. So then, let us consider what I believe to be the main points of this chapter. I'm sure many other points could be drawn from this chapter. But I think there are at least three things that are important for us to, to not forget. Number one, God is righteous and he will not allow evil to persist. God is righteous, and he will not allow evil to persist. Uh, 
I'm going to do something very strange, I think, for, for some. I'm going to jump to, to verse 5. Because I think verse 5 is what holds this entire chapter together. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. This, I think, um, connects this entire chapter together. It, it, it is, it is the, the, uh, the threads, I would say, that holds the, the two sides of this chapter together. Here it is, saints. <clears throat> God is holy. Amen. What is the point of the 16th chapter? The point of the 16th chapter is God is holy. Amen. Last week, we considered the... I'm going to slow down here, okay? Because um, this part is, is a little technical and I want you to get it. Forgive me if I go too fast or get too excited. Uh, I'm doing my best. Last week, we considered the absolute moral perfection of God. God is holy, holy, holy. Three times holy means that God is absolutely holy. He is perfectly holy. There is no sin within God. There is no flaw within God. God is not like man that he should repent. God commits no act of injustice, but God alone is holy. Follow me. Holiness is eternally in God. We could say holiness is formerly in God. God reveals his eternal holiness. Listen to this. Through righteousness. Just as we said in our sermon on the wrath of God, wrath is not formerly in God. Wrath is manifesting the holiness of God. And it would be improper for us to say that wrath is formerly in God because wrath is a negative thing. It's how we speak about God, but in an apophatic way. We speak about God as, as having wrath, but, but do so by negation. Righteousness, saints, is a legal term. Righteousness is a legal term. It has to do with acting in accord with divine moral law. God is a standard of that divine moral law. God is a standard of moral perfection, for he is holy. God holds all men to that divine moral standard of which he is the standard. Um, namely, he is holy. I am arguing very briefly that righteousness is also not formally in God, but that righteousness is God's revealing of his perfect moral standard by way of, of the law and calling men to act in accord with that divine moral law, which flows from what? His eternal holiness. Or absolute moral perfection. God does not act in accord with divine moral law. He is the standard of divine moral law. Of which we would say he is holy. And he judges those who transgress his divine moral law. I do believe in the midst of all that is taking place here in the, in the 16th chapter. Uh, we begin to, to hear and see and read of these bold judgments being poured out. Right? God is judging and then in the 16th chapter, an angel declares in the midst of this holiness, you are righteous for doing so because you are holy. 
He, the angel connects God's righteous judgments to his holiness. Righteousness is God's acting in judgment against those, two things, against those who have violated his law or violated his perfect standard of holiness by which he is the perfect standard. It can be very easy for us to focus on the attention, focus our attention on the meaning of the bowls, when and how they will take place, and overlook this main point. God is holy, and God reveals his holiness through righteousness. Righteousness, again, the standard of moral perfection, which is found to be absolutely perfectly in God, who is the lawgiver. God, who is creator of all, holds all men to the standard of perfect holiness. God judges those who fall or fail to meet the standard of his holiness. Yeah? By what? Well, by what we're seeing here in the 16th chapter. God's holiness is revealed through his righteousness that is manifested in judgment. Now, judgment is, I think, twofold. Judgment is twofold. One, in the judgment of pardoning sinners. Let's deal with the first. One in the, in the judgment of pardoning sinners by justifying them. That may sound immediately like a contradiction to our ears. We're talking about judgment, and in the one sense, a judgment is, is a pardon. Well, judges have the right to do that, don't they? When a judge stands, when someone stands before a judge, they can receive one of two verdicts, guilty or not guilty. So in God's Righteous judgment, on the one hand, he pardons sinners. How can God be righteous? Holding all men to a perfect moral standard and yet pardon sin. The answer, of course, is found in Christ. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. Being justified, justified is a legal term, being declared innocent as a gift. Our innocence, our being declared innocent by God, justified, is a gift from God. Through his grace, by his grace, through the redemption, Romans 3.24, that is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate, listen to this, to demonstrate what? His righteousness. God gives us forgiveness in Christ, who, who God offers on our behalf in order to display his righteousness. Because in, in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that we previously committed for the demonstration. That is, of his righteousness at the present time. So that we, he, listen to this, would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Meaning this. God is holy. Yes. God is righteous and has a perfect standard of his holiness. God judges those who violate his holy, righteous standard. God upholds his holiness and indeed is righteous. He must judge sinners. So then how does he pardon you? How are you forgiven of sin? How does God overlook your sin? It is overlooked in the sufferings of Christ. God reveals his righteousness in that he still crushes his son on your behalf, on my behalf, because sin must be punished. Sin must give an account. We have offended an eternal God. Therefore, we owe to God something of infinite worth. Can we provide it? No. God provides it for us through His Son. 
so that God does still punish sin, our sin, but he does so on the shoulders of Christ who bears, who becomes sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. So that we might be able to, in the person and work of Christ, claim the righteousness that God requires of all men, but that we cannot provide. God gives it to us in Christ. And if we believe in Christ, the righteousness that is in Christ can be ours. The righteousness that God requires of all men in order for them to be declared right before his sight. God requires of all men holy righteousness. And will not lower his standard for us. Instead, we look to Christ who is the image of the invisible God who does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christ suffers in our place. He is a gift of grace from God. In this, God is two things. He is just in punishing sin and he is justifier for those who place their faith in him. What a wonderful God we serve. God is not only just in that he, he provides the punishment that we deserve. He provides the lamb for us. But he also then justifies us by that very lamb that he provides for us. God is good. Saints, you who are in Christ, may I say to you, uh, you're going to be judged. You who are in Christ, you will be judged. And here, if you are in Christ, here is what God's statement to you, here is what God's statement to you will be when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Well done. Good and faithful servant. When you stand before God, here's what Christ will say. Because you have not denied me, I will not deny you. This is wonderful news. We, we often think, I won't be judged. Yes, you will. But you will be judged, uh, you will be justified before the throne of God. You will be declared innocent before the throne of God because you are in Christ. You will stand before God justified because you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. To God be the glory. That is, in one sense, God's righteous judgment being issued. But there's another judgment, isn't there? And it is for the wicked. Those who have blasphemed God, who refuse to repent, for them, God's holiness is revealed as he judges righteously by pouring out wrath upon them. Holiness, formerly in God, is how we speak about God cataphatically or positively. Holiness is always in God. Righteousness is a manifestation of his holiness that is revealed in judgment of pardon and also judgment by way of wrath. Not all things that are said about God are to be said formally in God. Does that make sense? We can't say that everything is an eternal perfection of God. We don't want to say wrath is in God. No, it's not. Wrath is a manifestation of something that is eternally in God, holiness. And so it is with righteousness. Now, what's the point of this? Uh, I, I, I love when I'm confronted with this, with Isaiah. Isaiah, when I have a conversation, he goes, that's good. Now, what's the point? The point is, it's good for our language about God to mature. But that's not all we're doing, right? The, the angel is not just outbursting with praise in the midst of this judgment, just so that we could say, good, um, learn how to talk about God better, which you should. When someone speaks um, improperly about God, stop them. Why? Because, well, because he's God, and we want to speak properly about God. We want our language about God to tighten up. We do. But in the middle of these bold judgments, the angel of the waters, 
Uh, that's a wonderful. The angel, the, the one who is holding back demonic forces. He declares about God, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. I hope you see the connection here. While these judgments are being poured out upon the wicked, the angel praises God who execute who executes judgment upon those who deserve it. Notice the legal terms. Righteous are you who judge. They deserve it. There is something of legality happening here in this 16th chapter. The angel roots the righteousness of God in God's holiness. Um, righteous are you. You are holy because you judge these things and they deserve it. Do you see that, that, that kind of, um, if you can look through a prism, there's one thing that, that is then emanating all of these wonderful things that come from, from God formerly. God reveals his eternal holiness through his righteous judgment, pouring out wrath upon the wicked and pardoning his elect because of, of Christ. The angel uses this common phrase that we've heard before, who are and who were, but he doesn't finish it with who is to come, but exalts the holy one who has come. God allowed evil to persist for a time, but he's been keeping record. He has been keeping record of the evil deeds of the wicked. Um, the wicked have filled up their bowls to overflow, and now God is pouring out righteous judgment upon them. I think it's important for us to ask as we're going through this. One might say, what have they done so wrong that they're being judged in such a way, what have they done that is so bad? Why are they being judged in such a apparently severe manner? We're given at least one of the answers by the same angel who extols God in verse 6. He says, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink and they deserve it. They have persecuted the church. Their persecution of the church is their persecution of God. When Saul was blinded by light, the light of Christ on the road to Damascus, Christ asked him this one question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ equates Saul's persecution of the church as being the same as Saul's persecution of Christ. He identifies himself with his church so that when the church suffers, Christ suffers. Judgment has come because the wicked have opposed and persecuted Christ through the church. Which means judgment has come and they deserve it. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. And in the end, they will be judged for all of their wicked deeds. In Revelation 6.10, the saints appeal to, to God to do this, to vindicate our blood from ones dwelling on the earth. Vindicate us, O Lord, from those who are pouring out our blood, pouring out the blood of the saints and prophets. And God is doing so. God is saying, as they are, are opposing and persecuting, I am pouring out judgment into a bowl. And eventually they will drink the blood of their of their wickedness. It's an allusion to Isaiah 49, 26. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The blood is meant to represent degrees of suffering and death. 
that the wicked have imposed upon the righteous. In Revelation 14.10, John heard an angel declare that God's enemies will drink the wine of God's rage from the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14.20, he, John, has seen the blood of those enemies flowing from God's winepress to defile the earth. The wicked suffer because they have caused God's people to suffer. John will see the Roman economic system and the whole pagan culture that sustains the harlot Babylon drunk, he says, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Christ. But the cup of divine wrath that she is to drink will be the exact duplicate of the cup of affliction that he is, that she has mixed for others. She will reap, Babylon will reap what she has sown. If for one second in the midst of this judgment, we are tempted to accuse God of being unloving or being harsh, the angel declares that the affliction of the wicked is due to them. For the deeds that they have inflicted upon the saints, they deserve it. Well, what a harsh thing to say, isn't it? No, it's not. The angel says it's a good thing to say. It is a righteous thing to say. They deserve it. They deserve absolute punishment. The persecutors of, of Christ and his church have poured out the blood of saints. And consequently, they deserve, they deserve to have their own blood spilled out. It can be. It could be tempting saints to look upon the world. And be disheartened by all of the evil that we see in the world. I don't need to give you countless examples of the evil that we hear and see all the time. You know of them. In Revelation 6, the saints under the altar of God, they have this pressing question that might be the same question that you and I ask from time to time. And it is this. How long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Aren't you tempted to sometimes look around and go, how, how long is this going to happen? How long is this wickedness and evil going to continue before God, you finally judge the wicked? Now, it's not an accusation. The saints under the altar, they're not accusing God of, of being too patient, not in the least. They're not asking God to align, for God to align himself with their timetable of judgment. That can be our temptation, our temptation too, right? Well, we can say, um, God, what's taking you so long? You should have done this a long time ago. We're not, we should never try to get God to, to line up his timetable with our timetable. Instead, nor question his wisdom. This doesn't seem right to me, God. Well, when you get your own universe, then you can start to have those kind of dialogues with God. Know this, God will not allow evil to endure forever because God is righteous. God has, he is, and he will bring evil to justice. Evil who appears to be um, loudly parading in the streets, it will be constrained and silenced in God's eternal decree and at God's proper time. The Holy One will judge righteously. 
And all we need to do is walk through history and consider the people who have transgressed the Holy One that the Holy One has brought ultimately to justice. Noah suffered for righteousness' sake. But in God's wisdom and according to his eternal decree, he did bring all men whose inclination, whose inclination and thoughts of their heart were evil all the time. He brought them to justice through the flood. Israel suffered for righteousness sake, but in God's wisdom, according to his eternal decree, God judged Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So it was with Babylon, Persia, the Greeks and the Romans, and all who aligned themselves with the kingdom of darkness. God will bring them, dictators and rulers, those who he raises up and those who he brings down, God will bring them ultimately to justice because God is righteous. When you scan the world and see the evil that persists, do not for one second think, God, have you fallen asleep at the wheel? Uh, are, are, are you are you even seeing what's happening right now? Do not for one second think that he has lost control over the reins of sovereignty over his creation. Not so. We also will suffer, saints, just as those, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, and we will do so for righteousness' sake. But in God's wisdom and according to his eternal decree, he has not, is not, and will not allow evil to persist always. He will bring it to judgment. Do not question that for one second. Amen. Now, I think that's the point of chapter 16. We're going to get into some of the details of chapter 16. But if you miss the first point, you miss the whole chapter. I, I would even venture to say that it's part of the whole meaning of the book of Revelation. That if you were to ask the question, what is Revelation about? It is... It is that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he will judge the wicked. And he has already judged them in the victory of Christ. And Christ is victorious over Satan, sin and death. And if you place your faith in him, then you also will be a partaker in the victory of Christ. That's Revelation. Let's go to our second point. <clears throat> in judgment the wicked continue to blaspheme God and will not repent. In judgment, the wicked will continue to blaspheme God and will not repent. Said twice. In, in, in this chapter, in judgment, the wicked will continue to blaspheme God and will not repent. Each of the judgments, that of the seals and the trumpets and bowls, they all begin from the throne of God. God's judgment is from God. The uh, enacting of judgment flows from the throne of the judge, the judge of the universe, who is executing judgment upon those who have taken the mark of the beast. Verse 1. Then I heard, this will be short, uh, trust me, a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Uh, notice that John does not see, but John hears. John hears a loud voice coming from the temple commanding the angels. The voice that John hears is the voice from inside the temple that is the voice of God alone. It is an allusion to Isaiah 66 and verse 6, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord rendering recompense, recompense to his adversaries. Uh, wrath, the manifestation of the holiness of God upon those who are hostile to God, 
is revealed by way of bowls that echo the plagues of Egypt. While the plagues of Egypt were literal plagues that God inflicted upon the wicked, the plagues spoken of here are most likely not literal. You with me? But in some way, they are figurative. Revelation is a, um, a book of symbols. So when we come to the 16th chapter and we see these plagues being poured out, you must carry on the same principle. There is something symbolic here, something figurative that I must discern in order for me to understand this, these plagues, right? In verse 2, the first angel pours out the first bowl. The bowls meant to symbolize um, God's, what Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 2, when he addressed the, the fate of those who suppress the truth of God. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are, here's, here's what the bowls are meant to represent, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of, on the day, on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness of the judgment of God. Here in chapter 16, that which Paul spoke about is taking place. Rather than storing up treasures in heaven, like the righteous do, the wicked are storing up wrath for themselves in heaven that will be poured out on the day of judgment. Bowls are meant to, therefore, represent and symbolize wrath. Uh, each time the wicked sin, God is pouring into those bowls judgment. And pouring in judgment and pouring in judgment until they are stored up to the point of overflowing. I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use a very um, probably bad example that is going to ruin your summers. <clears throat> Think of our summers here in Bakersfield. In some of the parks, you will find a structure. Um, you will find water parks. And in some of those water parks, you will find a structure um, where there is a, a large kind of pail. And there is water dripping into that pail. But the pail has a left-to-right motion. And all of the children come, and, and they, are, they are gathering under that pail. Because once that pail that is rocking back and forth is finally filled with as too much water, it will lean to the left or right, pouring out water on all the children. And they'll go screaming and loving it, right? The same idea is being communicated with these bowls. God's... Um, judgment is being poured into these bowls as the wicked are continuing in their wickedness. And they are filling as they continue with, with their wicked deeds until the point where God will say enough and pour out his judgment upon the wicked. I hope it doesn't ruin your summers as you've seen kids drive through Bakersfield. Wickedness has run its course here. God will not allow evil to persist, but the time of judgment has come. The first angel, the first bowl, the angel comes with judgment upon those who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The bowl of God's judgment is poured out on those, and they have what, what is called a, a malignant and loathsome sore. One theologian says the punishment, it, it, it matches the crime. Those who receive this idolatrous mark will be chastened by being given a penalizing mark. The contrast, of course, is, or, or the meaning is, those who have trusted in the beast, those who have taken the mark upon their hand and their head, are those who have in thought and in deed pursued the, the love of this world. They pursued self-praise. Um, 
they have fallen in line with Satan, the one who sought to exalt himself above the throne of heaven, they are in legion with him. In thought and in mind, thought in mind, thought in action, they are seeking to exalt themselves. Those are the ones who have the mark of the beast. They bear the mark of the beast and they follow his ethics. They desire to have honor and praise to themselves. They, they seek glory for themselves. They shall be afflicted with the plague that will ultimately bring them to their knees, to this re- realization. Here's what they will finally realize. All in vain. Pursuit of self-glory, all in vain. Pursuit of, of self-praise and honor, all in vain, all in vain. What will hurt them even more? is knowing that the one whom they have worshipped, Satan, cannot save them. And they will gnash their teeth at God. And they still won't repent. They who have found their allegiance with Satan, they will find they will only reap sorrow for eternity. They will be filled with earthly sorrow as they realize that their investments were for naught. And that once again, Satan cannot rescue them. Similar to the Egyptians who trusted in the gods of Egypt when they were afflicted by boils. uh, They suffered both mental torment and spiritual torment. Uh, Imagine these sores all over your body. You're looking at, at yourself with utter hopelessness. Look what has become of me. Is there any coming back from this? There is not. So those who are judged in the end, they will come to psychological and spiritual torment when they realize that their gods can't save them. And they still won't repent and they still blaspheme God. The bowl is poured out on the people of the earth. Not on the earth this time. The target is those who have aligned themselves with the beast. Um, second angel, second bowl, verse 3. The second bowl corresponds to the second trumpet from Revelation 8, where the sea is turned to blood. We, we, we're going to make, an, I hope, a, a connection. Both these judgments, like all plagues, find their basis in the plagues of Egypt. The difference between the second trumpet and the second bowl is its effect. The trumpet affects one-third of the sea. The bowl poured out affects the whole sea. G.K. Beale says the second bowl shows that what can, what can be applied partially can also be applied universally at times throughout the inter-advent age. Meaning this, this plague often extends throughout the whole earth and not just parts of it. There has been, there is, and there will be times when God's judgment afflict, afflicts not just some people but everyone. Figuratively, this idea of the sea, we've heard about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? The domain of the serpent is the sea. You remember in Revelation 13, the dragon stands on the sand of the seashore. And what, who does he call forth from the sea? He calls forth his dragon, the Antichrist, to come forth from the sea. In chapter 15, we are told that God calms the sea. To the point that it is as still as glass. 
What does the sea represent? Evil. Wickedness. Evil has been put to rest. Here in the second bowl, the sea of the waters have been turned to blood, destroying all who are in the sea. It's symbolic of God putting an end to evil. Of God bringing judgment upon the wicked. A judgment so great that if you can imagine it, the sea is red with blood of the countless many who will be judged by God in his righteousness. John says the result, verse 3, and every living thing died in the sea. Or evil has been vanquished. It has been made still. And even still, men will blaspheme God and they won't repent. Verse 4, the third angel, the third bowl, the the third bowl parallels the third trumpet. The third trumpet brings destruction upon the rivers and springs of water. They are made bitter and many die as a result. The rivers and springs are turned to blood and the result is death. Here's what this means. The resources of men will not be able to save men. Whatever resources they may be, they are dried up and they are unreliable in the day of judgment. Men will turn to their resources. When I say resources, some of us will think, well, we're only talking about the rich. I'm talking about the rich and the poor because poor also have things that they rely upon for um, their security. So let us not just think about the rich. Let us think about all men who place their trust in, in things other than God. When the day of judgment comes, those things that they trust in will not be able to save them. Whatever they may be, they will be dried up. Men Men will cling to those things, but they will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. And still, men will blaspheme and will not repent of their sin. Fourth angel, fourth bowl. In the book of Exodus, the sun turned dark. It gave people no light to the point that they could not see right in front of them. And now the opposite is true. The sun will scorch men with its heat. For the wicked have blasphemed the name of God and they will not repent. Think about this contrast. In Egypt, uh, the sun was taken away from them to the point that they could not see in front of them. And now, in, in the final judgment, the sun burns. The heat of the sun blazes so strongly that men are scorched by its heat. Now, well, what does this mean? It means that God is removing his kindness, his general kindness from men. I don't like the word common grace. I, don't, I only like to word, use the word grace when it comes to, sal- to salvation. God is removing his general kindness to all mankind. They are presently, all mankind are presently allowed to live, to move, and to enjoy life. But they don't give God glory as they should. They enjoy God's creation. They can travel. They can go um, here and there. They can see the wonderful creation of God. And yet they don't give Him glory. So there will come a day when God will allow creation to turn on men. Because of God's kindness, He holds back the water's edge. Uh, we can go to the oceans and we can we can trust that the ocean will go no further than our feet, can't we? But there will come a time when God will say, go, ocean. Go as far as you want to go. Cover the world as far as you want to go. Uh, Men's enjoyment of God's creation that they don't give Him praise for will betray men. 
the, the sun that men lay on and go, I'm going to get a beautiful tan, will eventually burn them because they have not given God praise for the sun that he's provided for them. We have rain and we don't give God glory. We have sun and we don't give God glory. Instead, we enjoy these things as if they are, as if they are our right. Instead, they are, they are attributed to God's kindness. God blesses us with these things. And we so often take them for granted, don't we? We exalt the things rather than God. And God is saying, keep exalting yourself in those things. They will one day betray you. God keeps the stars in place and doesn't allow them to fall. God allows this earth to spin at a certain rotation so that we are not um, falling all over ourselves. <laughs> God does this in his kindness. But throughout history, God has removed his kindness from men. Just like he did in Egypt. In Egypt, there is a betrayal of man's sanity and also a betrayal of nature upon man. Pharaoh, if you're taking a close look at Pharaoh's life, he's being tormented in his soul. Here is a man who at one point um, is, is at least being reasonable with Pharaoh. And the next moment is being unreasonable with Pharaoh because God is softening and then hardening his heart. Much like Saul, who is going through this spiritual torment of wanting to kill David and then saying, David, my son. There's a torment of, of Pharaoh's soul that is taking place in the book of Egypt and in, in the book of Exodus that that is attributed to God's kindness and then God's judgment. God is saying, um, do you want to know how kind I am? I'm going to allow you to be patient. Do you want to know? How kind I am. Now I'm going to release your mind and let, let, and let you see just how crazy you could be. You know that your sanity is attributed to God's kindness? Why are you, why are you not acting? Why, why are the wicked not acting as wicked as they could? Because God's hand is, is over all of humanity and not allowing men. To, but there are times when God does release his hand, doesn't he? And we see, um, the full, the full wickedness of what man could actually be. Go throughout the history and see some of the men who have been as, as wicked as God allowed them to be. And it's, it's just an evidence of God's kindness that he is restraining evil. But there will be a day when God will say, I'm going to let not only mankind go, but then nature go as well. When we see the frogs um, soaring, uh, not soaring, um, pouring into Egypt, God is taking his hand off of nature. Go, run wild. Frogs are everywhere. When we see the, the, the locusts flying in, they're disobeying the normal pattern of what they should be doing. They're saying, we can go anywhere, God. Go wherever you want to go. We take for granted that there are not, uh, look at Dustin right now, there are not bees swarming all over the place right now. God is holding back nature. And there will be a time when God does not hold back nature, but allows nature to express the true um, wildness of itself. The waters become impure. The sun refuses to shine in, in, in Exodus. The cattle waste away. All of these things are a result of God taking his hand of kindness off of creation and the world. And this is the result. Men lose their mind and nature goes wild. <clears throat> the point is this, John sees a time when those who have trusted in Egypt for protection will suffer because God will remove his hand of kindness from them. 
John makes it clear. Men cry out in agony. They suffer punishment. But it's not the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. It's worldly sorrow. It's a torment of body and soul, but not a, not a turning of the soul. And still, men will blaspheme God and will not repent. Fifth angel, this is the last one. Fifth bowl. Notice that the angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. The throne of the beast. Because of this, the throne of the kingdom of the beast is darkened. The beast is unable to rule as he desires. His kingdom is shaken. Just like the plague of darkness. When Pharaoh could not rule as he desired to because, of, because he could not see the, 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 what was immediately in front of him. So God will inhibit Satan's kingdom. He will not be able to rule as he would like. He will take away his ability and expose Satan for what he really is. The domain of darkness will be in confusion and men will suffer. The wicked will run and try to find some kind of cover, but there will be none found. They will be exposed for who they are and who they've made their allegiance to. I had to talk with with Brother Isaac just very briefly last week about this this very point. And even in judgment of hell, men will blaspheme God and will not repent. Repentance is a gift from God. Men left to their natural devices blaspheme God and will not repent. Repentance is something granted by God, given to, to men by God. Men don't naturally repent even when they suffer at the hand of God. Even when they know it is God who is causing them to suffer, repentance is still yet a gift of God's love. And men who suffer under the punishment of God will not repent and will continue to blaspheme God. They will accuse God of wrongdoing, of not being holy, of not being righteous, and of not being true. They will not long for salvation in hell. They may, lo- they may long for relief, but not salvation. Salvation is communion with God. They don't want that. They blaspheme God. They accuse God of being unholy and unrighteous. In hell, they will continue to scoff at God. You're, don't think about your loved ones who are going to, who are right now on their way to hell saying they're going to feel so bad. No, they're not. They're going to be discomfort. They're going to suffer discomfort, but they're not going to want communion in the way that you have communion with God. They refuse to give God glory and disobey the eternal gospel proclaimed by the angel who announces the arrival of the hour of God's judgment in Revelation chapter fourteen seven. And this, they show the horrifying effect of bearing the mark of the beast. Because now they imitate their owner. Satan who will not give God glory. They show that they are his children. Saints. Let us warn our loved ones. Who right now are refusing to repent. Let us warn them of the absolute futility of following the beast. Let us be bold in our witness and love for them. And also in our prayer for them. Third and finally, and we'll close with this. The righteous remain safe under the altar of God. But let us be warned. Verse 7. I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgment. 
uh, brothers and sisters, whenever we hear the word altar in Revelation, our minds should always hearken back to Revelation 6-9, where the saints are making intercession under the altar. Uh, they are not on the altar because Christ has already been offered in our place. Instead, we are now under his divine protection, under the altar of God, under the holy place of God. All of the judgments of God, they, they are partly a response to the prayers of the saints who are under the altar of God. We are under his divine protection. Just as the plagues of Egypt, they touched the, the, the wicked in Egypt. They touched the, the citizens of Egypt, but they did not touch Israel. We, we are safe in the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, rejoice, because all of the things that we have talk, talked about today concerning the judgments of the wicked, they don't apply to you if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, rejoice. God's judgment of punishment will not fall upon you, but rather God's judgment of pardon is upon you. You are secure in Christ. And dear one, just as we should not take for granted the blessing of creation that's been given to us, let us not for one second take for granted the blessing of salvation that's been given to us. Let us not take for one one second, take for granted one second, the fact that we are now new creations in Christ, that our minds have been enlightened, that, that we have been given hearts to, to love and, and enjoy God. How are you enjoying God now? How are you showing that you are truly appreciative of the fact that you are under the altar and not one who will be punished by God? Well, praise be to God. Your attendance here is one of the ways that you show that you are appreciative. But, but saints, I encourage you. Examine the actions of the wicked. And ask yourself... Do I in any way, does my life in any way look like the life of the wicked? Am I trusting in things more than I am in God? Am I looking at creation and enjoying it but not giving God glory? Am I looking at all the blessings that I have in my life and not giving God glory? Am I pursuing God and His holiness and His righteousness? Am I seeking to look to His word and to His law and say, God, make me like you? Saints, I pray that God would give us a great warning in looking at the lives of the wicked and saying, and let us say with, let us say together, let us, let our lives not look anything like theirs. We appeal to God for his holiness through judgment. And here in the 16th chapter, God is answering that prayer. The time of judgment has come. God is pouring out the blood of the wicked because they have poured out the blood of the righteous. And we, with one voice, agree with the judgments of God as being true and righteous. In Revelation 15, John sees the righteous standing on the sea of glass, victorious over evil, and amending the judgment of God. And so too, the righteous, you and I, we participate in the judgment of God with our yes, O Lord, God Almighty. True and righteous are your judgments. We are participating in God's judgments. And they won't come near you because you've been justified by the blood of Christ. He has taken the punishment that you and I deserve. So rest secure in him under the altar of heaven because of the person and work of Christ. We not only agree with God, but we participate in his judgments because we are united to God in Christ. Let this be our encouragement. And also, let it be our warning. Do not envy the wicked. For it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God.
Let us pray.